The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of 1 Peter, still, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that will all be up on the screen for you. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, which is where we're at, and then we will be going through this together. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words and consider all that you're showing us in Jesus and how he is this cornerstone and you are our Father, that you are giving us mercy, I pray that we would become people like Jesus and like our Father in heaven people who are full of mercy. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. I um, I know that I tend to use, well, let me start by this. Has anybody here met like a famous actor or director? Like anybody? Met anybody that's like super famous like that? Like the closest I've ever become, I come to meeting somebody like that. My aunt worked as a stagehand on Broadway and she worked with Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow, however you pronounce her name. So like that's like the closest I've ever come to meeting uh, one of those folks. But uh, I know I use a lot of like movie illustrations and images and stuff like that. And it's just because like I like movies and I like like what they do, the way they tell stories. And I'm always like fascinated by directors because to me it just seems like an impossible job to be a director because here you are like as a director, you have like whenever you, we all skip the, the trailer, like the credits at the end of movies, but like as a director, your name's up front, but you're responsible to make sure that like all these hundreds of people do everything to get the job done to create this vision of a movie that's two hours long happen, right? So the, the costume, casting, sound, like not just like the music, but like like if there's horses, like the clickety-clack of the horse's hooves. <laughs> like everything, you're the director, you make sure that everything happens. And to me, it just seems like an impossible job. So, like, we know, like, names like Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams and Peter Jackson. I'm sure you can list other guys that are other names. 
Um, but like to me, it's just like an incredible job because you are taking this vision of what you want at the end of the road and guiding everything towards that. In this passage, we end up finding a sort of God is the director of his people to make much of Jesus. And we're kind of seeing like what kind of director, what's God like? Like the one thing that's different about, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are different between like Steven Spielberg and God or whatever the comparison is. But like, I like Steven Spielberg movies or J.J. Abrams movies or whatever. I'm never going to meet them. <laughs> like, I'm never going to like get to meet them and get to know what they're like. At most, if you're an actor or a stagehand or something like that, you get to meet them. And you kind of get to, you know, shaped by them and you'll have people in their acceptance speeches or whatever, like so-and-so, thank you because you really shaped my life. But I'm never going to meet them. In this story, with God as the director, he comes and lives among us, and we get to know him and meet him and get shaped into what his story is like by knowing him personally, by being a part of his story. So we're not, we're not on the consumer end of God's directorial work. We don't sit in the theater and watch. We're actually the actors. We're actually the stagehands. We're the people who are, so to speak, the credits at the end of the movie. We're actually in the movie that God is directing. So what we find here is that God is the kind of director that he is, is a merciful God who is doing something, who's building something, guiding everything towards being more like Jesus. At his core, God is a merciful God who wants to tell a story that celebrates mercy. And he wants to do it with people who themselves need mercy, which is you and me. So here's the main point what we're looking at here in this passage, and we're going to start kind of going through it. Taste God's mercy to grow as a mercy-giving community. That's the, the, the goal of what God wants, is people to be like Jesus, that people who are all gathered together as a community, who are themselves defined by mercy, who are a mercy-giving community, and the way we get to that end goal of whatever that looks like for us is to taste and know God's mercy personally, each of us. So we're going to pick up here verses one to three, and we're going to look at growing to long for mercy, growing to long for mercy. So you put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So that's where that that word tasted there, that's where we're kind of getting this language of taste God's mercy. Here, verse 1, it's a list of basically like all the no-nos. Don't do this. That's kind of like a very kind of obvious statement, right? Put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. That's kind of one big category, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. One commentator comments and says, these, this is a list to do with certain antisocial attitudes and behavior. Basically, mischief or bad blood. This is ultimately a, the nursing and acting out of grudges against particular people or against society as a whole. Right? These are basically the ways in which we are cynical, judgmental, uh, putting people down whether that's in our thoughts or actions, it is, um, it is the way in which we distance and demean the culture 
or people around us. And you'll notice verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Towards who? It doesn't say. Whether that's people in your church, or that's the people around you in your neighborhood that aren't believers, that co-workers that aren't believers, it's a blanket statement, meaning it's towards everybody. All of these antisocial, cynical attitudes towards any particular people, whether that's your church, another church, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, anybody who's not a believer, doesn't matter. Put away these attitudes towards them. And it says, in contrast, verse 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Now, the way I've heard this typically discussed is pure spiritual milk is the Bible. So the way you put away all these evils is to long for the Bible. I want to say that I'm not saying that the Bible is bad. (laughs) I'm not saying that the Bible isn't good teaching and nourishment for us, but I don't think what this verse is aiming at is Bible reading. Bible reading is an extension of this verse, but what this verse is aiming at, listen to this illustration. It's, it's It's a metaphor. Listen to it with me. Like newborn infants, so you you're just you are just supposed to take on the posture of a newborn child that needs milk. Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And here's where the milk comes into play. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The emphasis in this these verses is not to say that the Bible isn't where we meet God, right? He's just said in the verses leading up to chapter 2, he's talked about the Word as how you engage with God. But the purpose, the, the purpose of your hunger, the purpose for your longing is, I think, these verses point towards God himself being what you're longing for. So behind this is actually um, Psalm 34. Have you, I don't know if you remember Psalm 34. It's a pretty famous psalm. Let me, let me just kind of read some of it for you because we're going to uh, we're going to comment on this in a second. I did not mark it in my Bible, so I'm just going to kind of take an awkward moment here and pull it up. Psalm 34, we have these sort of statements. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise him continually with my mouth. Then, then, then down to verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who takes refuge in him. We have these famous statements over here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When the, Lord, when the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and delivers him out of all his troubles. See, the, the focus of Psalm 34 is by using God's word, pointing us towards the Lord himself is our help. The Lord himself is who delivers us. The Lord himself is who we long for. So what Peter's saying in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he's saying, Long for the Lord who gives you mercy, who gives you the good things that you need for your soul's health and life has the antidote for the ways in which we all grow cynical and take on negative attitudes towards people in the culture around us. We long for the Lord himself as a way of growing to be people who are like him. See, this is, in Psalm 34, we find that the Knowing the Lord himself is where we find deliverance from shame, from the afflictions around us, the wants that we have. In contrast to the word full of malice and vengeance and evil, 
right? Actually, Psalm 34, verse 13 says, those who use words for evil, we are to be people who long for God himself. See, the point here is that we need to be people who grow continually in our lives with the Lord to, to depend on the Lord himself, right? You, you, never, you never grow out of depending on God, right? The, perp- the, the way in which you're a creature is that by being a creature, by being somebody that God has created, you will always be dependent, right? You never grow out of being a creature. You never grow into being God himself. You're either God who creates or a creature who depends, See, the rest of the other places in the Bible, it talks about, so it's Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3, it says you're supposed to grow out of longing for spiritual milk. And there, it's referring to, like, Christian knowledge, like Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, those sort of things. Basic, the basics of the Christian faith, things that you should know. You should know the Ten Commandments, you should know Psalm 23, you should know, you know, Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, Psalm, you know, Sermon on the Mount, you should know the basics of the Christian faith. But Paul, in those places, is recommending, hey, you need to grow into understanding more deeper aspects of Christian doctrine. Here, Peter's not talking about spiritual milk as though it's like knowledge. Peter is here referring to spiritual milk as our nourishment, the lifeblood of what it means to be a Christian. You will always and forever long for mercy when you depend on the Lord. When we grow, we long for God to deliver us from death and the ways in which we see death in our lives. We experience death through sin. We experience death through the brokenness in relationships and work and creation and the fact that no matter how many times I seed that part of my yard, there will always be dead grass there. It's a simple illustration. The ways in which we continually struggle against addictive impulses in our own lives. The ways in which we always experience disappointment. God is delivering us from the effects of death, and we always need him, not our own agenda, to find new life in him. So, how do we grow in our longing for mercy? I found it particularly provoking to consider my own, my own life in verse 1, where the commentators comment and says, the verse one sins are the nursing and acting out of grudges against particular people or against society as a whole. I will just confess that I am prone to cynicism, which is continually assuming the worst about people and the world around us because it's just so easy <laughs> these days. I mean, you watch the news, any newspaper, whether it's local news or, or national news, it is always just wrought with disappointment, wrought with evil. And it can be, I just assume that that is the world around me. And I thought that it is acting out of and nursing grudges against particular people or society as at large. This is my own, I'm prone towards this. I need God's mercy. We live in a world that is uh, particularly increasingly designed to provoke us to be cynical and to hold grudges against other people. I mean... You realize that's, that's the nature of what Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these things do. Like, the way the algorithm works is to get you to engage with it more, and negative emotions cause you to be more engaged. If you're happy, you just move on with your life. But if you're negatively provoked, you're engaged more, and then you're commenting or 
doom, I mean, how many, I'm not going to ask for a hand, but how many people have doom scrolled just to be kind of like, can you believe that they said that? That sort of stuff. It's all designed to provoke us to consider how bad the world is around us. Those are the sins of 1 Peter 2.1. The antidote is to rather see, God, you have dealt with me in a way, you, God does not doom scroll through your life. You're he doesn't look through your life and say, like, can you believe that Jacob did that again? He's very aware of it. God is eager to give me and you mercy. So let me just, I wanna, what I want to do, so how do we get, how do we grow in our own longing for mercy? I think even just to go to Psalm 34 with Peter and, and to meditate on these first few verses. I will bless the Lord at all times, Psalm 34. I will praise continually, his praise continually will be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Where, where in your life in the last week can you point to and say, I experienced goodness, I experienced relief, I experienced life in this area and recognize that that was the Lord's gift to you. And then how can you, how can you share that with somebody around us? That's what small groups are for. So verse 33, magnify the Lord, not in my devotions personally, but with me, with other people. So you look at people around me and say, hey, you know what? I was really struggling this week and fill in the blank whatever way. I saw the Lord act in this particular way. I sought the Lord and he answered me, verse 4, and he delivered me out of all my fears. What are, the, what are the fears that you long for God to have mercy on your life? The things that you're afraid, and I'm not saying like fears like, oh, I'm afraid to get hit in, like, to get in a car wreck or a bump, like a, a, some sort of like fender bender, like something simple like that. I'm talking about like core fears, like things that you're like legitimately like, I'm afraid that this could actually happen. And it may sound crazy to you or other people, but it's a real fear. It doesn't matter. What does it look like to long for mercy, God's deliverance, to not be afraid of that? That takes time, but also takes awareness. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. What are the ways in which you long to not be ashamed of areas of your life, past, present, future? God, I, I want to feel your mercy that Whenever this comes up, I'm not triggered to be ashamed of it anymore. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see, verse 8, the Lord is good. You can continue to do this through Psalm 34, but the point is just to say, every moment where we are afraid of our dependence upon God, is a moment where God invites us to experience the lifelong practice of needing his mercy. That's what this is pointing towards. Let's pick up here in verse 4. See what else Peter has to teach us. We want to grow in lifelong mercy. Lifelong, what was the point? Growing to long for mercy. Verse, two, verse 4, we're going to pick up here, not only to, as we become people of mercy, we want to grow as a building project for mercy. So verse 4 to 8, let's read this. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, put in the sight of God, but in the sight of God, precious and chosen, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Lord is for you who believe. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a, the cornerstone and a, sto- and a stone of stumbling, a rocket of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed as they were destined to do. Now, just a small comment here on verse 8. This destined to do, I, it could be two interpretations of that. Quite simply, it's either the uh, predestination perspective that God predestined them to disobey, or it could be a wisdom perspective that those who continue to reject the Lord walk down the path towards destruction. Like, it's either one. I'm not particularly convinced one way or the other. Both of them work. I, I guess maybe I particularly prefer the more uh, the wisdom perspective that those who reject the Lord continually, continually walk towards a path of destruction. Um, kind of like you get what you sow sort of thing, but whatever. See, behind all of this is that we are defined by death. It's interesting that First Peter continually talks about resurrection, the Jesus' Jesus' own resurrection, chapter 1. And so what he's dealing with are categories of death and life, right? Jesus is eternal life himself. We are born into death. Jesus experienced new life after his death, and he gives us new life in him. So we're continually engaging with these categories of finding new life, and where does God roll back the power of death in our lives? And so what we find here is that God is, in fact, through the resurrection of Jesus, building a house of new resurrection life among us. Has anybody done, like, stonework, like, whether that's like a, a wall or like a retainer wall or anything like that, like stonework type thing where you've had to like, anybody? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> when you're built, like you get like a, a, you have a truck pull up and you, you dumps all the stone down, like you actually have to go through and sift through the rock to begin with to figure out what are the stones and where do they fit because they're all basically like intricate puzzle pieces. Like if you like doing puzzles, Stonework is basically a big stonework puzzle or piece. And you're trying to find the one, where's the one that's going to have just the right angles, the right sort of uh, positioning, the right sort of weight to start out. It'd be kind of like the anchor that you then build everything else out from. That's what basically this is. It's an ancient practice. People have done this ever since they've been moving sticks and stones around, right? Forever, building things with stones. This is a reference to that, basically saying the stone that people expected for the corner um, didn't actually work out and that building project fell apart. The one that they should have been using that they rejected and threw out into the field, that's the one that God wanted for his building project. So what this, what these is saying is that the, the way in which God wanted new life to be in our lives, for us to experience new life in him, his expectations and what that looked like are very different than ours. Can you, have you ever thought about like, when we look at these verses and it says, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, what is it? It's obviously a reference to Jesus. What was it about Jesus that, re- that people rejected? I mean, we could go down the list all day. You know, he, he didn't fit their expectations of what, you know, it, the Bible says that he wasn't handsome. I mean, 
right out of the gate, Tom Cruise has that up on Jesus, right? I guess. I, I personally am not like a big Tom Cruise fan, but that's a, a rant for a different day. What are the expectations that people had, right? Powerful, strong, you know, he came, comes with a sword, a warrior type. Who do we get? Carpenter from a podunk town, probably short, probably not good looking, probably like he spoke with force, but maybe not the most eloquent. All these expectations, he didn't play by the religious system, he didn't play by the political system, he, didn't, he confounded all their expectations. See, if, if he is the one that God wanted to build a house of new life in, that means that all of our expectations of what somebody would look like are expectations of death. We would have, if we'd gotten what we wanted, it would have been a house full of destruction and domination and death. But in Jesus, the one that's rejected by our own personal expectations and systems, Jesus is the living stone that God wanted. Jesus steps into our world, and as the life giver himself, he confounds our expectations, gets and gets ground and gets ground up by our expectations and willingly dies so that in his resurrection he gives us new life that confounds everything that we would have hoped for but gives us everything that we need. See, it's interesting. We, we just preached through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And when we got to the Tower of Babel, I made this comment, and I'm not sure anybody remembers it, but it stuck with me. When we read the Tower of Babel, one a, a Jewish scholar and then other commentators have, have pointed out, the Tower of Babel is, it comments specifically and says that they took the earth and they made bricks to build the Tower of Babel. What's one of the things about bricks that's so easy to use? They're all uniform. They're all exact. I mean, you think about, like, I mean, we've got bricks in the wall right here. Some variation, but basically they're all the exact same, right? They all look exactly the same. They all fit the exact paradigm, it, which is great for building because then you don't have to worry about what's the cornerstone going to look like because you know what it looks like. It's just basically a bunch of those, you know, at a catty corner together. It's easy. What's interesting is that God wants us to be stones. That's how the temple was built, was with stones, the thing with stones is that they're unique, they're different, they require effort and attention. They're all going to fit together differently, right? That means that in each church that God is building, it's going to be a bunch of unique, weird people that are all getting fit together in a particular way to be a local church together, and it's just going to be different. Like, each church is going to be different from one church to the next. What that means is that God loves each individual person just as they are to be a redeemed version of themselves, a living stone, just like Jesus to be fit together to be a particular congregation for God to live in. One of the things that, that does mean, this, I think these verses are speaking about God's universal church with local applications. Each person in every church is their own unique living stone that God is fitting together for their own good, for their health, for the health of the congregation they're a part of. And what that may mean I think this is what this means for us, is that as we experience church departures, we don't need to see that as kind of like, oh, they're walking away from the Lord. We want to be a place, we're striving to be a place, as an eldership, we're striving to be a place where it's a healthy place for people to lead. 
then find another church where they fit in a better way. That doesn't need to be a judgment against anybody else. It doesn't need to be a judgment against them. It's not a judgment against us. Certainly there's ways we can grow and get better. But it could be that, that they're going to be healthier as a part of a different house that God's dwelling in and building for over there. That's okay. But that's why when we pray on the Sunday mornings on our prayer list, we have three different categories of prayer uh, churches we pray for. We pray for local churches that are gospel-preaching churches that it's not a perfect list, but it's a list of people that we know and like what they're doing and care about them. They have like a regional list of churches that are, you know, in our denomination, churches in our region that are doing the same thing. And then we have a global prayer list, which is always like everybody kind of, we never quite know how do we say that Hispanic word or how do we say that Arabic word or whatever. That's just a global church in Acts 29 that's doing the same thing that we're doing. That's it. Each of those churches have their own living stones that God is building to be a local place for people to experience, who have experienced mercy, for other people who experience mercy. So along the lines of the church departure thing, it really is okay. If people need to find a different place to be healthy and grow in Jesus, that's great. We just want people to be who are be living stones who want to be in Jesus, who like Jesus, who love Jesus, to grow with other people who love Jesus. That's really at the end of the day what we're trying to do. To that point, what that means for us here is I know you guys probably get tired of me quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm just saying, the man was a genius. Bonhoeffer has this to say in a little book called Life Together. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the one who loves those around them will create community. And he goes on to say, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with other Christian brethren. See, the point of what he's saying in that comment is I think along the lines of what Peter's saying. Have you ever experienced anybody, or maybe you've been the recipient of, like um, project dating? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you date somebody as a project to like fix them? If you're married, you shouldn't be dating anybody else. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you're dating somebody to be kind of like, well, there's this one problem about them that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. So you turn somebody from a person into a project. What Bonhoeffer's picking up on here is that we can have great ideas about what the church should be like. But at the end of the day, this place is not for great ideas to be realized. It's for people to be loved and helped to grow in Jesus. It's to accept people exactly where they are, not where we want them to be. When we're here, we're living in life with Jesus together, really, we may have great ideas. You may have great ideas of how I need to change. That's great. But if you love the idea of how I need to change rather than me, for who I am, you're always going to be working against what Jesus is trying to do. Because Jesus wants to take me and you from where we are to be more like him. And his ideas may be in a different order, may have different emphases, may look very different than our idea of what other people should be. So when we come to these verses, you you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up This is the building project that God's continually doing as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are to accept each other completely and only through Jesus Christ himself.
not through our expectations of what other people should be like, but just as we are, so that Jesus gets his work done in us, simply and only through himself. We're going to look on, we're going to finish out here, verse 9. You guys are are cool? We're looking at this whole passage under this idea of taste God's mercy to grow as a mercy-giving community. Verse 9 to 10, grow to be advocates of mercy. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. I'm sorry, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's this idea that we're kind of culminating with to be people who have received mercy, a group of people, not just individuals, but a group who's received mercy. It's interesting. I want you to hear these. I want to read verse 9 again. And in the middle of this, I want you to consider whatever your internal narrative is. I I don't know what your internal narrative is about who you are. If you're anything like me, it's self-loathing. Um, negative, confused, often thoughts of suffering and pain. But here is God's proclaimed identity for you. You are a chosen race, a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people that God likes to have. That is who you are. You are precious to him, regardless of what your internal narrative is. And confronting that, this is how God thinks about you, right? If you're ever trying to figure out, like, how do I understand my internal thoughts? How do I fight against negative thoughts? This is God's thinking about who you are, precious to him, alive to him, somebody he enjoys to have in his family, royal, I mean, I don't ever, I don't greet people with sup king, sup queen. Certain sense in which that's legit, right? But it's interesting. I want to pick up here on this word. You are a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be a priest? We've talked about this before, so I'm going to talk about it in brief right now. In the Old Testament, what did a priest do? In the Old Testament system, if you went to church on Saturday or Friday afternoon, whatever it was, you would show up. You would say, here's the sins I've committed. And the priest would say, okay, here, let me take that sacrifice. You bring the sacrifice. The priest takes the sacrifice. The priest takes the sacrifice into the temple. You know, kill the animal, offer the grain, whatever it was, in the temple so that you would be forgiven of your sin. So you would receive mercy and grace. He would then take that mercy and grace from the temple and bring it out to you out in the courtyard. So a priest was a go-between, somebody who took your need, went into the temple, got God's grace for that need, and brought it out of the temple. And he is saying here, you are now a priest. I think the corollary for our contemporary times is an advocate, right? Somebody who has, if you've ever been in the justice system, or you've had somebody who's had a justice system, often you have, certainly you have a lawyer, but sometimes you need somebody who's advocating, who's on your side of the situation, who goes in between and makes sure that you get the things that you need whatever the system is. 
what God is saying about us here. You are people that are defined. We are people who are defined by need and need continually. And what is the solution for that? Verse 10. People who have received mercy. So as somebody who needs mercy, where do you get that from? You get that through Jesus. You bring your need. You go to Jesus. Jesus, I need help. He gives you the grace, the power to to persevere, the mercy that you need. And then you move on in your life in Jesus. And what God is saying here is that you are now the priest for your neighborhood. You are now the priest for the needs and dependence that your neighborhood has before God, right? You take your need, you go to God to get mercy, and then you take it out. Who do you take it out to? The people in your life, the people around you who do not have the same mercy that they need. They need it, and you then become an advocate for the mercy that they need. For example, this is why, as a regular basis, as a church, we have what's called four compassion uh, categories that we pray for on Sunday morning, right? You know, we've mentioned it. I'm sure you guys wonder, why do we pray for these things, right? We pray for uh, those in addiction and recovery, those who are experiencing homelessness, single parents, and refugees, right? Those are four compassion categories because in our life together as a city, those are categories of people that need help, that need compassion, that need mercy, right? Those are not those people out there. Those are people among us. That's our neighborhood. Those are areas where we need help. We're actually going to add two categories to that as a congregation. We're going to add people who teach in city churches, like so whether that's uh, public school, I mean, certainly homeless school, but then also charter schools, kind of like all iterations of way in which we experience um, uh, people who are teaching. Because at least through my experience of watching Peter in our congregation, not the Apostle Peter, teach in schools, is, man, they need major help, a lot of support, a lot of care. And the other category we're going to add are people who are, who are in the foster care system, right? We've, we've had a couple family meetings recently. We've had people who said they're getting involved with foster care. They want to adopt. They want to be foster parents. Man, if you ever listen to their stories about what's going on in the foster care system, major needs for help. I'm not saying that those are the ultimate categories of compassion and need that either are in our city or anything else. I don't know if those are the compassion categories of Haverhill. I don't know if those are the compassion categories of Derry. I don't know if those are the compassion categories of any other place. I know that at least in our life as a congregation in Manchester, those are the areas that need mercy. And how is God looking to give mercy to those areas? People in our congregation who have those areas are either, they are, those are a part of their lives or their areas are getting involved with, who are experiencing the absolute need for care and grace and mercy who then go to God, either in small group or in their personal lives, and say, God, I don't understand what the heck is going on here. Would you help us out? And then they experience God's support and care, and then they are themselves a representative of that mercy in those contexts. Is that making sense of what's, what that looks like? It's very, very kind of gritty and involved. It's not idealistic. It requires your time and effort and heartache and pain and prayer and support and community as a way of experiencing what does it mean to become somebody who's an advocate for mercy. Often we talk about evangelism mission as like something out there that we go do, 
And what this verse is saying is that it is something that it is built into the program of what it means to be a Christian, where you experience dependence and need. Those are the exact areas that God intends to use to spread the fame of Jesus and to spread the community of mercy where you live. Mission and evangelism is often in simply knowing our own needs and recognizing that God will illuminate our needs so that we and others like us can get in on his mercy, his power, his grace, his miracles of life and support in the midst of trials. So, as you continue to worship the Lord this morning, you are becoming somebody increasingly defined by mercy. We sing about mercy. We're about to take a meal about getting God's mercy. We're about to walk out and become advocates, priests of mercy. Because as we continue to experience God and his mercy towards us, we continually get shaped to be a mercy-giving community. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at your word, we're grateful that here we find a Lord, a Father, who chooses us, who wants us, who delights in us, but most importantly, gives us mercy and help. So I pray as we continue to see you and know you and enjoy you, that we would be people who are a mercy-giving community to the people around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.